Good morning and welcome to Rising. We are so excited to bring you a special show on Wednesday. We're saying it's special. I don't know that for certain, but every show <laughs> is special. Maybe this one even more so. I'm feeling extra special vibes today, Robbie. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Well, News Nation's Ali Bradley joins us. We'll discuss the developments at the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll also get into a new bill that could see TikTok banned in the United States. But first, things came to a head on Capitol Hill yesterday when Senator Bernie Sanders withdrew his proposed Yemen war powers resolution after reporting revealed the Biden administration was actively whipping against it. Here's that moment from the Senate floor last night. So once again, where we are at is I'm not going to ask for a vote tonight. Uh, I look forward to working with the administration who was opposed to this resolution and see if we can come up with something that is strong, that is effective. And if we do not, I will be back. And with that, uh, Mr. President, uh, I yield the floor. Sanders' resolution would have banned U.S. support of the Saudi-led offensive in Yemen. In a tweet last night, Sanders said he withdrew the legislation for further negotiations with the Biden administration. He went on to promise to reintroduce the bill if an agreement wasn't reached. Despite the Vermont senator's pledge to continue working toward a resolution, anti-war advocates hit out. Dave DeCamp wrote that Bernie Sanders caves into White House pressure. There will be no vote on the Yemen war powers resolution. What a coward. And then over on my side of things, the Libertarian Party tweeted, shame on Bernie for caving to the White House by refusing to call for a vote on the Yemen resolution. Just as we've said before, we're proud to be America's only anti-war party. Meanwhile, the Biden administration, which declared an, quote, end for U.S. support of the war last year, maintains that the resolution is unnecessary and would, quote, greatly complicate the intense and ongoing diplomacy to truly bring an end to the conflict. Uh, this is pretty disappointing stuff, it right? It is. And look, I, 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 <laughs> we've been talking about this all year, right? We've been talking about uh, Joe Biden saying that he was going to make Saudi Arabia pariah and then turning around and basically fist bumping MBS. Uh, we've been talking about how uh, U.S. courts just basically cleared uh, Khashoggi, uh, sorry, um, MBS of any involvement in the Khashoggi murder. Uh, we've been talking about how it seems like American foreign policy is only righteous and based on these morals and principles and defending democracy, et cetera, if it also seems to align with America's global economic interests. And we see this with how various parts of the world are treated as compared to, let's say, what's going on in Ukraine. And this just seems like another piece in the puzzle where where there are progressives who I think genuinely have been advocating for this bill for a really long time with folks like Ro Khanna and the left has been really shepherding this with some crossover from libertarian-oriented people across the aisle, when there is a president, a Democratic president, who basically does not support the bill and is willing to veto the bill, all of the protesting and all of the goodwill and all of the sincerely held views in the world amount to nothing. Yeah. Uh, Justin Amash, um, a former member of Congress, the only member of Congress to be an actual member of the Libertarian Party, he tweeted, I think we have it, let's put this on up. Um, he tweeted that um, both R's and D's in government are addicted to war. They're playing a game. When Trump was president, everyone knew he wouldn't sign a Yemen joint resolution, so it passed Congress. Biden has yet to pretend he he'd sign it, or Biden has to pretend he'd sign it, so he needs Congress to block it. So yeah. when it's just for optics, when it's just for um, for for show, then okay, oh yeah, uh, the, all the Democrats will vote for it. Then when it's actually going to happen, Biden's like, no, 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 and, please no. And, and this dance 
this uh, dance, sometimes it's described as a rotating villain. Sometimes it's described as these kind of fake force the vote moments. I think there are, are authentic force the vote moments, but we just saw this a little bit with the railroad workers, right? There was all of this back and forth over whether or not progressives had to vote for the bill to give the Senate a chance at voting for the seven uh, the the seven day sick leave uh, amendment when everyone knew it wasn't going to go through. And we knew because Biden has, was sitting at the top the whole time, he had to look like he was potentially the good guy and Democrats needed to fall. So they bifurcated the seven-day sick leaves from the ultimate TA and were able to say, look, it's Republicans who did it. It's Republicans who wouldn't vote for the seven-day sick days. When Biden, of course, could have said, I'm only going to sign a bill that includes the sick days. And if it didn't pass Congress, he could have punted it back to the railroad workers and they could have used their strike power to for leverage to actually get what they wanted. We saw this with the $15 minimum wage. Oh, the, a Democratic president who has been running on the $15 minimum wage can't kill it. So here comes Chuck Schumer stripping the $15 minimum wage out of the overall COVID relief bill, which was a must-pass bill, and everyone can say, oh, well, the conservatives plus Kirsten Sinema didn't want this, but the rest of the Democratic Party remains pure and intact. And it's why sometimes people don't credit conversations about whip counts and people's desire to do X, Y, and Z, because at the end of the day, it seems that there always is a machination of one kind or another that prevents the good thing from happening while giving Democrats a modicum of coverage. It feels especially true on foreign policy, where the blob is just all-powerful, because there are so many dissenters uh, on the on the left. Obviously, I, I think it's unfortunate that, that Bernie caved here, but, you know, he was calling, he was going to have this resolution to to uh, end support for the, the Yemen war. The Koch political network, Charles Koch, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a bugaboo for so many <laughs> unprogressive circles, his lobbying, the lobbying arm of, of the Koch wing, um, uh, 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 the Americans for Prosperity, they were urging, they were whipping it on behalf of the bill. They were oh, urging so people to vote for it. Mm. They want an end to the, their, their very, um, you know, this is a kind of libertarian or, or quite isolationist conservative, and isolation is not the right word, but anti-interventionist contingent of the right joining with the anti-war left. And, and, and there are lots of Republicans now who are against the endless spending in Ukraine. We talk about that all the time. Yes. There is so much bipartisan support for having a different foreign policy that runs up against just just the administration and just the, the national security state that and, is so yeah. powerful. And that's, I think that you actually see these kind of machinations happening more frequently when we're talking about issues that are overwhelmingly popular. Because that's when people need cover. If you can make some justification that some portion of the country doesn't actually want to end qualified immunity because they're still pro-cop or some portion of the uh, the country still wants to be in Afghanistan, you don't see as much of this. But with these clear issues where people do not want the expansion of American empire, where people don't want do want things like a fifteen dollar minimum wage, which again, I know it's like a broken record with me, but which won with sixty percent of the vote in Donald Trump's red Florida. You know, you have to start coming up with excuses, especially especially if you herald from the party that is supposed to be aligned with these kind of interests. I mean, and on foreign policy is what the the mass that where the public is is always so far removed. I mean, except at like the very height of kind of Bush hawk fervor mm-hmm. in like the, 
you know, 2002 to 2004 time period. Outside of that, you always had majority opposition to what's going on in Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, etc. People are people. The American people are very reasonable on foreign policy. Yeah. They feel for what what's happening to people in Ukraine and places like that. They want to know what kind of support we can offer. They want to offer moral support. They're against and humanitarian the support and humanitarian support. But they they have questions about what the strategy is because the people in charge have no idea what they're doing yeah. and have gotten it wrong over and over again. And the American people are sick of it. Yeah. There's no category of issues where if you just put it to the American people, you would do better than the, than, than foreign policy. Yeah. And but so every time they're thwarted. Yeah. Well, it does look like at least nowadays people are increasingly hip to the game that's being played. So we'll continue to cover this and tell you what's on my radar coming up next. All right, Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, the story about the Twitter files has largely become a story about how the mainstream media is responding to the Twitter files, which is ironic because the story at the core of the Twitter files, the Hunter Biden laptop story, was a case where the media reaction became more newsworthy and more troubling than the story itself. Instead of substantively engaging with the content of the files, many mainstream media figures have taken to making attacks on the character or motives of the journalists entrusted with the leaked documents or provided documents. The Washington Post characterized Matt Taibbi, an independent journalist who identifies as liberal, as conservative, an error which was corrected after an enormous amount of Twitter backlash. This is a guy who has written a book about Trump called Insane Clown President, a book condemning Wall Street corruption and another detailing the tragic death of Eric Garner. Disagree as I do with some of his takes about culture issues, but conservative is a stretch in anyone's book. Other journalists, like Puck News's Julia Ayafe, raised complaints about Taibbi's past misogynistic statements, statements he since contextualized as satirical, but which, even if taken at face value, don't bear on the newsworthiness of internal Twitter documents. Journalist and frequent contributor at The Root, Michael Harriet argued that it's only because Taibbi is white that he finds the disclosures newsworthy, tweeting, Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk rummaged through millions of emails and Slack messages from pre-Musk Twitter, and all they found was employees deliberating and consulting with each other about how to fairly apply and enforce rules. But I get it. To a rich white man, that seems very oppressive. Hmm. The purpose of coding Taibbi this way, as a conservative, a sexist, and a racist, is clear. The smears are intended to deflect from the hard question of whether Twitter has, in fact, been a tool of the establishment, both Democrat and Republican, and whether liberal journalists, in particular, turned a blind eye to that reality when the bias seemed to benefit them. And we'll get more to that substance in a moment. But regardless of how you judge Taibbi's past statements or Barry Weiss's politics, which are quite different from my own, it's possible to judge the value of the reported news on its face. And in fact, I think it's our obligation to do so. To that end, I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the disclosures related to shadow banning or what Twitter calls visibility filtering. According to Barry Weiss, Twitter employees confirmed, quote, we control visibility quite a bit and we control the amplification of your content quite a bit. And normal people do not know how much we do. 
She explained that the group involved in making these decisions was called the Strategic Response Team slash Global Escalation Team, and it handled up to 200 cases a day. But an additional group, which included the head of legal policy and trust, Vijaya Gad, global head of trust and safety, Yul Roth, and Twitter CEOs made, quote, sensitive decisions about high follower accounts and controversial users. Now, perhaps because libs of TikTok and other accounts highlighted in Barry's Twitter thread are conservative, this issue, like so many others, has been cast as a nothing burger. And because Twitter had already disclosed that it ranks tweets in search results, many commentators have argued that Barry misrepresented this disclosure as new news. The argument goes like this. If Twitter has always been open about the fact that it, quote, ranks tweets from bad faith actors who intend to manipulate or divide the conversation lower than other tweets, then Barry was being dishonest when she argued that Twitter lied about not shadow banning users. Okay. As Eric Levitz opined in New York Magazine, quote, Weiss did not try to reconcile that claim with Twitter's longstanding terms of service. In fact, she did not even inform her readers of the existence of those terms. But here's the problem. When Twitter claimed it didn't shadow ban, it did so by first defining shadow banning narrowly as, quote, deliberately making someone's content undiscoverable to everyone except the person who posted it, unbeknownst to the original poster. After offering that narrow definition, the Twitter post then went on to claim that Twitter doesn't shadow ban because people who follow you can always see your tweets. I gotta say, I don't work for Twitter, but I am very online. And I have never believed shadow banning to mean that literally no one can see or find your tweets ever, which is how Twitter define it narrowly. It's commonly understood to mean that your tweets are deprioritized significantly so that users who aren't specifically looking for you are unlikely to follow you. And when I Googled it, I found a definition that seems to track my understanding. When I searched to find shadow ban, this time in the context of Instagram, I got the following. Quote, basically shadow ban refers to the platform limiting your content reach by restricting visibility. Yeah, that gels with my understanding. And Twitter did that. It shadow banned by its own admission. It just refused to call it that. Gaslighting users by claiming it quote that quote, we do not shadow ban. It's hard for me to believe that Twitter didn't understand the semantic game it was playing. But journalists like Levitz credibly accepted Twitter's narrow definition of shadow ban, which allowed it to claim that it does not in fact shadow ban. He accused Weiss of, quote, leading her readers to believe she'd caught Twitter in a lie. In other words, he wrote, she misled her audience. In fact, it was Twitter's policy that was misleading, and perhaps intentionally so. And for those of us who've noticed immediate and dramatic changes in our Twitter engagement following bouts of establishment criticism— those disclosures do, in fact, matter. Now, I am by no means saying that the journalists reporting on the Twitter files don't warrant some scrutiny. Certainly, it's worth asking if Barry Weiss's politics might incline her to, say, look more closely at conservative accounts that have been shadow banned, ignoring leftist ones. It troubles me that these documents were not made public so that we can ensure that the victims of Twitter's overreach aren't being selectively revealed in a way that confirms a liberal bias— when I suspect the bias is centrist in nature. Note that Matt Taibbi revealed that the World Socialist website has also been a victim of this kind of suppression. 
It's also fair to ask whether Weiss's history of trying to silence voices critical of Israel might bias her against reporting speech restrictions on left pro-Palestinian accounts. But it is also true that regardless of the spin either journalist could conceivably put on the disclosures, the Twitter files themselves, the raw email data is of relevance. And focusing on the news bearer is a convenient deflection from inconvenient truths. There's a reason we're warned proverbially not to shoot the messenger. Now, journalist and former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, David Sirota, hosted a conversation with Matt Taibbi on his live call-in show yesterday. And there, he expressed empathy with Taibbi's position. And I, for what am not surprised, Sirota too has been coded as sympathetic to the right and antagonistic to the interests of liberals. Why? Well, for the crime of reporting news that's of interest to the left, even if it owns the libs. In 2019, he was excoriated for reporting on the fact that Beto O'Rourke, who, remember, at the time the media was trying to pitch as like the better, younger Bernie, had lied about his no fossil fuel money pledge and voted for pro-fossil fuel industry bills. Democratic insiders, like then Center for American Progress President Neera Tandon, were furious. And in now deleted tweets, accused Sirota's reporting of being, quote, seriously dangerous. Again, the crime being, quote, a supporter of Bernie Sanders attacking a Democrat. <laughs> Heavens to Murgatroyd! <laughs> the crime always is attacking the establishment, and the punishment is being locked out of traditional media and political outlets. I don't think it's an accident that reporters like Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, and David Sirota ended up starting their own publications at the peak of their professional prowess. The mainstream media simply does not tolerate certain points of view. As a fellow independent writer, Freddie DeBoer pointed out in a recent Substack piece, quote, if you think that Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss are the wrong people to cover the story, perhaps you should ask yourself about the social professional conditions in media that have created a cast of outsiders who are the only reporters that many people trust. If the establishment media thinks it's only fit to cover this story, it should reflect on why it ignored the Hunter Biden bombshell that started it all in the first place. Yeah, that's all very well said. Um, I also noticed the Washington Post, was it, calling Matt Taibbi mm -hmm. a conservative? Um, look, you don't have to, right, you, if, you, if you don't want to say he's a liberal or a progressive because these words have changed and he's more associated with a kind of contrarianism, fine, but he's clearly not a conservative. Right. You can use more words. You can you use can more words. Use big words. You can take an extra sentence <laughs> to explain the situation. You know the words. <laughs> uh, and that's something that happens, uh, although I have to say mainstream media has been getting my ideology in my publication, uh, Recent Magazine, where I also write, we are described every which way. I'm described every Sometimes it's conservative journalists, sometimes libertarian journalists, sometimes libertarian conservatives. Sometimes I think I've been described as, we've been described as a Republican magazine. Mm -hmm. We don't support Republicans whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They just can't, they've always had trouble thinking outside a very narrow two-box view. And things have gotten even more complicated because now there's all sorts of people who used to be associated with liberals or the left or progressives who have had a falling out and there's also and there's massive infighting in the Republican coalition. You might as well be a Democrat if you don't support Trump for some people on the right. So these words don't have quite the same meanings as they used to, but man, do they wish it was simpler for them. Yeah. And I got to say, you know that this is one of my uh, bugaboos as a leftist, that leftists basically don't exist in the discourse. People are interchangeably described as liberal and left and progressive in a way that makes actual leftists want to tear our hair out. And it matters. And in this case, 
it matters because it's very, very clear that people are uncomfortable or maybe they're just too lazy to engage in a substantive argument. And you can make a substantive argument about, about why you think certain parts of the disclosures actually don't amount to much, um, why you think that they're being framed in a way that is painting a picture of what was going on at Twitter that is more anti-right than, you know, uh, anti a lot of different kinds of groups and question the disclosures as I did a little bit there and, and how much we're actually seeing. Um, there was a, on the, on the Colin show that I mentioned in the radar, uh, Matt Tavy also explained that something like 50% of the data had been deleted before he got to it. So again, there's a little bit of selective bias there. There's a lot of substantive criticisms you can make. They didn't choose to do that. They chose to come out ahead of it all and say, the, the people are racist, the, the journalists are racist, they're sexist, they're conservative. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a bad signal to all of the liberals or disinterested folks watching, people who aren't that engaged, to say, you don't have to pay that much attention to this. Mm-hmm. It's all a, a hand-waving exercise. Mm-hmm. And that's a real shame. Absolutely. You, you called out Julia Yaffe very correctly there for trying to, well, well, this is nothing to see here because Matt Taibbi a million years ago was in, you know, when he was in a totally different era in journalism and in life, was engaged in a project that you had some insulting, uh, frankly, very sexist yeah, stuff involving like it. That. Fine, but that has nothing to do with but what's it has going nothing on to do with this. And also at the time, he, he then shared a email he got from her at the time. It's her praising him. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> I missed that one. Yeah, I'm not surprised though. All right. Thank you so much for that, Bree. We'll have more Rising in just a minute. Ex-crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried used customer funds to made, make millions of dollars in illegal political donations, specifically with the intent of buying influence. That's according to the latest filings in the SEC's indictment of the former CEO. Prosecutors also say Bankman-Fried gave contributions of at least $25,000 to campaigns and political action committees, quote, in the names of other persons. When asked whether President Biden would be returning any illegal donations made to his 2020 campaign, here's what White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre had to say. We got uh, campaign donations that may have come from customer money uh, to return those funds. So, look, I'm covered here by the Hatch Act, uh, limited on what I can say, and anything that's connected to political contributions uh, from here, I, I, I would have to refer you to the DNC. I'm not asking the President's opinion, though. Uh, you know, does he want those people who... No, you asked me two questions. You asked me about will he return the donations, and then you asked me about his opinion. I'm answering the first part, which is I'm covered by the Hatch Act from here. I'm limited to what I can say. And I just can't talk to political contributions or anything related to that. I cannot speak about it from here. Bankman Freed currently remains in custody in the Bahamas and was denied bail yesterday, despite his attorney arguing that he suffered from depression, insomnia, and ADD for over a decade. That's part of their argument. Yeah, there has been some increased scrutiny uh, on his parents and some of the statements that they've made and some questions about whether or not if some of his decisions have been motivated by their legal counsel and whether or not they were really equipped to give him uh, good legal counsel and this kind of a defense he, he feels should, opportunistic. He should absolutely not be granted bail. I would assume he is a flight, flight risk. risk. He's in the Bahamas. He's he could get money. himself yeah. to somewhere where there's no extradition. Right. So, yes, it was correct yeah. to deny him bail. And so that kind of defense, I you know, I have yeah. anxiety, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's almost as convenient as Karine Jean-Pierre's uh, dodging behind oh, the, the hatch, hatch act. act. 
<laughs> That's not what the Hatch Act is. I mean, you can you can feel I, a little I, bit less giddy about the idea of saying, "Oh, there's an excuse. <laughs> I've, I've put up an excuse." The Hatch Act prevents um, prevents uh, government officials from in their official capacity using government resources to campaign, not to answer questions. Yeah. So that was yeah, not we, true. Yeah, we had this but. issue on the, camp, on the Bernie campaign where he had given a number of like great speeches or, or, or you know, interviews from the office, and it's, can we use this in a political ad? Like, can we use the speech that he gave in his congressional capacity in, in this thing that we're trying to clip? And it was very annoying because we were tiptoeing around, around that sort of thing. This question about whether, is Joe Biden, is Joe Biden going to keep political donations from SBF. I'm not sure that it qualifies. And even if it did, I would like her to use a little bit more discretion mm-hmm. and not seem so, so gleeful about having an excuse as she did. Um, I mean, it, it yeah. is interesting because, uh, you know, if you, if you steal a bunch of money and then give that to someone else, are, are they on the hook for I mean, it's, uh, it, gets, it gets dicey. I mean, that's not in, yeah. quite now just the situation. Um, the SEC is charging... Bankman Freed right now with defrauding his investors, mm-hmm. not the not the people whose money he took. Mm-hmm. Um, now there might be a separate. I think the was the consumer, um, the CFTC might be filing a claim that has to do with that. So mm-hmm. this is going to be a mess. Yeah, sorting out whose money went where, what, and was vaporized by this guy. Yeah. Well, look in the wake of his being arrested um, right before the congressional hearing, he was supposed to testify in. There has been a theory that's been floated by some prominent conservatives. Elon Musk floated it, as well as a number of Congress members. I believe we have a clip. Bahamian authorities to put him in custody so he would not testify today. I mean, are you inferring that? I'm not inferring, but everybody knew he was going to testify. I mean, the, the chairman of the committee, the ranking member, last night it was set that he would testify now. It's interesting that this was taken up. I'm not going to refer anything, but after reading what we found now from the Twitter files and others, it at least, I believe, it would be important to ask the question. Did anybody know? Was there any action taken? I don't know what to trust anymore from this perspective. Why would they, when all of his money goes to Democrats, why would they want him not to have to answer these questions? And it's not true that all the money went to Democrats. Mm-hmm. There was money given to Republicans as well. But it's not, um, it, I, okay, it's not wild to think that some part of the system might want to shush him up because he's so forthcoming, mm. so unusually forthcoming, mm. in, to his own detriment in the interviews that he's given, uh, to, to the detriment of his legal defense. Sure. Um, he, uh, so I, I can imagine not wanting him to say things about conversations he was having with pro, um, with, 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 legislators who wanted to regulate crypto in the way the manner that he did, uh, the things that he could theoretically reveal. Sure, now, the, the, it, it starts to get a little conspiratorial. Well, does, like, Biden's DOJ want to do that? And, like, is everyone working in the same kind of concert here? And Because also there were Republicans who theoretically would need to be protected. Yes. And, and the more straightforward case is just that, like, law enforcement is going to bring him to justice and lock him away because that's what law enforcement does. Like when they've compiled evidence on you, they yeah, arrest so, you yeah. and they put you away and they now have enough evidence. And so they're proceeding. Yeah, so, the, so the pushback is that basically some conservatives are framing his his absence from the hearing where he would testify as some kind of absolution, as though he's not going to be tried in court and interrogated much more thoroughly right. by the DOJ and, and, and be, he's going to be offered less time. Him. I still think he's going to get a lot of time, but he's going to be offered something 
but, right, less but, in exchange but, for denouncing but, or whatever. But that the questioning <laughs> that he's about to get is obviously going to be much more acute and kind of better prepared from the people who are actually bringing these charges against him than from some random Republican senators that tend to grandstand, both parties do this, but who tend to grandstand in these kinds of hearings. Now, I take that point. I think that's right. There, you know, Elon Musk tweeted, SBF was a major Democratic donor, so no investigation. No, there's obviously an investigation and not being at the Hearing is not a lack of an investigation. However, I do think that some of the kind of liberals who push back against this theory are sidestepping that there is a particular optics um, issue for Democrats in particular, where you have Maxine Waters on this committee who has personally received donations Absolutely. and a bunch of conservatives who will who be able to ask him. them. High five you know, him. Right. Well, Maxine Waters isn't going to be in the room during his his testimony in court mm -hmm. for people to point out and say, did you give money to her? It's not going to be that same kind of optics um, yeah. kerfuffle as the, as, a, as a Senate testimony, congressional testimony might have but, been. But some conservatives are, are kind of trying to have it both ways right now because there were a lot of uh, people on the right uh, critical of, of uh, Sam Bigman-Fried and, and his lobbying for Democrats saying that, oh, this, this was him setting up his own protection. He's never going to get arrested because he's bought himself protection. And then he gets arrested, or detained, yeah. about to be arrested. Yeah. And then they're saying, well, oh, they're only doing that because we made a thing about it. We, you know, we held them accountable. We, we shamed the media for going soft. And I, I did think the media went a little soft for a while. Yeah, they did. So now they they're, did. Jumping, they're leaping into action because they've been correctly shamed for not doing enough. And now we're saying, and that's bad because we wanted to give him a few more days. Do you yeah. see how that's like? Yeah, for now sure. that's leaped every way on this to just for kind sure. of be like. It, it's almost impressive how bad. well Republicans have managed to to stick this idea that Sam Bankman Freed was uniquely pro Democrat. When Bankman Freed himself has come out and said, for one, my business partner was the one who just donated mm -hmm. to the Republicans and I was donating to the Democrats purely for optics reasons. And then the Republicans are kind of falling for that silly optics. Um, and moreover, that Sam Bankman fried made really clear, and I think this is, this is a point that I'm going to continue to stress because I think it's important. He made it very clear that his priority was getting involved in primaries, not general elections. Because if you get involved in primaries on all sides of the aisle, whoever ends up in the general election is going to advance your legislative agenda. And that's exactly what was happening here. And it really does, I think, genuine populist uh, conservatives a disservice to have the leaders of the party so willing to ignore what was an effort mm -hmm. to buy off the Republican Party too, an effort that came very close to being successful and ultimately, depending on Although the. Although he did spend policy. a lot, as far as we know, as of yet. Maybe this will change. Maybe we'll find out he spent money as well on right wing media, right wing nonprofit organizations. He, he seems to spend a lot of money on you know left of center and progressive media, um, it, it, having the effect of of this very kind of glowing approach to this guy, no, all the that's adjectives, absolutely all true. that. That's absolutely true. And it doesn't seem like, it seemed like the, the media spinning was much more biased yeah. and, the, and the charitable spinning was much more biased yeah. toward kind of left causes. Although I also will say the way these causes are being described as like left broadly is a complete misnomer. I interviewed a reporter um, from Puck, who's been doing very close coverage of this uh, sector and did actually an in-person interview, not in-person, but a, an interview with Sam bakeman free just before he was arrested um, and, uh, about all of this. Uh, and uh, the point that he was making was that, you know, despite all of the, uh, the, the kind of liberal media coverage, at the end of the day, uh, you know, 
Sam Bankman-Fried himself says specifically, I wanted to capitalize on the perception that I was a liberal person and knowing that you can't have right. it both ways. You have to go into a camp. And so that he specifically gave dark money for the purpose of misleading Republicans in exactly the way that they're being misled. Well, and, and his um, his main cause, this effective altruism, is interest, It's an interesting philosophy. It, it's not... I wouldn't call it of the left. It's not a conservative philosophy right. either, but it's so, somewhere so he in backed, this. He backed, for instance, yeah. we talked a lot about this, Jessica Cisneros, who was a progressive running against the last pro-abortion Democrat, uh, Henry Cuellar. He backed Henry Cuellar in that race. Over and over again, he was backing candidates that weren't the most left, mm. that weren't the most progressive, that weren't the most aligned with this humanitarian agenda he was giving money to for other causes around the way. But in fact, a kind of political donation scheme that one might say aligned, generally speaking, with the establishment of the Democratic Party. Yep. So again, I'm surprise, sorry, surprise. Beat, a, beat a dead horse. It's always this establishment alignment that, get, that we're distracted from because there are these like partisan aspects to it, but it's the center that always benefits. Yeah, well, I don't mean to sound uh, naively hopeful, but I don't think his giving, charitable giving to the establishment <laughs> is going to protect him from a very likely prison sentence. I, I think that's see. right. More rising right after this. Stay with us. This past weekend, a migrant caravan of over a 1,000 people crossed the border from Mexico into El Paso, Texas. This is the largest caravan of migrants ever to cross the border at once. El Paso Border Control is reporting that it currently has over 5,000 people in custody and hundreds have been released into the city. This video shows hundreds of migrants at an El Paso parking garage where an NGO is helping them figure out their next steps. For other migrants who remain on the streets, El Paso police have asked them to take their things and leave as the city has a no camping ordinance. Police have reportedly reached out to shelters for help, but there's no more space. Joining us now to discuss all this is Southwest correspondent for News Nation, Ali Bradley. Welcome, Ali. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Yeah, thanks for discussing this situation with us. So is that no camping uh, provision, is that being followed? Are people clearing out of the streets or the sidewalks if they have uh, tents set up, things like that? You know, Robbie, as you can see, as I move out of the way a little bit, you can see behind me, there are absolutely migrants still on the streets here. When I talked to police yesterday in El Paso and I asked them exactly what they're up against here, they're dealing with the surge, right? So I asked them, what are you going to do? Move these people and then tomorrow you're going to move them from the location that they have relocated to? And he said, basically, that's what they're up against. He said that they called multiple shelters. The shelters are full. We know that the facilities are all maxed out right now. And so they are doing their very best. But right now, their best just isn't going to be good enough with this many people because they don't have the resources. Now, the city is doing what it can as well. They are doing kind of roaming patrols, if you will, where they're taking buses and vans and going around and they're finding these groups, these pockets of people, around 20 people congregate together and they're trying to help them find some kind of shelter. So this morning while we were driving around, there are visibly fewer people on the streets here today. So it does look like they've chipped away at that a little bit. However, we do know, uh, as you mentioned, there are still more than 5,700 people in Border Patrol custody. And we also know that more than 2,400 people are still streaming in. And we know that there are hundreds still waiting on the Juarez side as well. And just just small question, what is the temperature like? What was the range of days and nights, et cetera? Yeah, so a lot of people think Texas and they think it's warm, right? It is usually, but it does get cold here as well. And that's exactly what we've been experiencing this morning. It was 35 degrees with a feels-like temperature of 28 degrees. So 
they're absolutely dealing with these freezing conditions out here. And, and it is very cold. And these people don't have extra clothing. They don't have warm clothing. There are a lot of them using blankets that have been donated to them, uh, whether it be Red Cross or Good Samaritans that have dropped things off. Ali, what do we know about what's caused this sudden influx and this unprecedented number of people um, migrating here? Well, we do know that the caravan takes a lot of time to move up from southern Mexico and all the way to our southern border. So that's part of it. However, the cartel controls the southern border. So they decide when and where to push people through. And when we see these massive groups of people ahead of the end of a health code policy like Title 42, which is impending uh, the expiration December 21st, we're kind of scratching our heads a little bit here, Brianna, because why push through now? Why not wait until Title 42 is over next week? So that is something that we don't have the answers to. However, we are working to get some more information on, on what happened here. Why are why were we seeing 7,400 people in a weekend come into El Paso? Mm, well, it certainly raises some questions about how much American immigration policy is actually determining or affecting people's decision to immigrate, as some people have suggested politically that Democrats kind of signaling that they are more open to immigration regardless of what the, the facts are, is somehow impacting immigration levels. I agree that the timing of this doesn't seem to necessarily line up with that, but I look forward to, to hearing more about that. Earlier this week, dozens of migrants uh, crossed through the Cocopa Gap in Yuma, Arizona, lighting fires along the way to stay warm. And as you mentioned, temperatures dropping below 40 degrees. In total, 6,964 migrants crossed into the Yuma area in just the past week. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is working to slash the number of immigrants who would qualify for asylum at the southern border, focusing instead on opening new avenues for citizenship application while folks are still in their home countries. For migrants attempting to enter the U.S. at the border, asylum officers are being trained to only allow them to enter if they qualify under the Convention Against Torture. So if they can't prove likely torture if they return to their home country, migrants will have to show that they sought asylum and were denied asylum in another country on their way to the U.S border. This model of asylum seeking was first put into place under President Trump's immigration advisor, Stephen Miller. So do these people come with the kind of documentation that would be necessary to satisfy those kinds of criteria? I mean, you know, what are they what are they carrying with them? No, right now they're just carrying their release paperwork. Most of them might have uh, reporting instructions or a notice to appear in court, but every single migrant that I've talked to, they are trying to work here, which does not constitute as an asylum claim. So that is something that our administration is going to have to work out and figure out. But one of the people that I talked with saying that they want to be here to work, she's from Nicaragua, a country that the administration is considering expanding uh, a program that they introduced in October that is uh, right now targeting Venezuelans. They're expanding that potentially to Nicaraguans. That's part of their contingency plan once Title 42 goes away. And we'll see what comes of that and if that does happen. But that's kind of one of those pathways that you were talking about there. But something interesting that I should mention here, a lot of the migrants that I've talked to as well, and I also posted this video to Twitter, they believe that the border is open right now. So Brianna, mm -hmm. you asked me what's causing this and is this policy? A lot of it's mixed messaging and messaging that's wrong getting back to these migrants, because if they're being told that the border is open, and then our DHS secretary is being is, is telling the American people that the border is secure. There's a message that's getting lost in translation there, obviously. 
Hallie, who is telling them the border is open? You know, Kamala Harris famously rankled a lot of folks when, uh, as part of her assigned duties as vice president, um, she went uh, south and declared, you know, do not come, do not come. So where is this contradictory messaging coming from, do you think? It could be coming from family, friends, anybody like that, because if somebody made it over here successfully, that is a game of telephone that makes it back to the next person. They say, I made it over this way. It was easy or it was hard. And this is what I went through. But the other thing is, Brianna, cartel doesn't make money if people don't think that they have a chance of getting across the border. So by using that message and by saying that, yeah, they're going to let you in, that offers them the misconception and they are they're now operating under the guise that they're going to be able to walk across the border and they are we're seeing it happen so when they say the border is open they're not necessarily wrong because they were able to just walk right in mm. well it's worth noting that the shift in immigration policy is a dramatic change from what has historically been the standard for american asylum cases was there were already re relatively narrow categories uh claiming you have been prosecuted on the basis of your race, religion, sexuality, other kinds of protected categories. And now this move toward only being able to make a claim on the basis of um, being tortured in your home country is going to not just kind of box out some of the people who very openly are coming here for economic reasons, but who might have sincerely held asylum claims. And Robbie, you asked this question, you know, what do they have with them in terms of documentation? I was no immigration lawyer, but I did do one pro bono immigration case. And it was worth noting, that was a year-long process of him riding back to home, having his family send him diaries and documentations and proof of arrest and, and uh, you know, charges that he had um, made, assault charges that he had made uh, back in his home country. And it is a, an interesting question. And if you do have that kind of a claim, and he was successful, you know, so if you do have that kind of a claim that takes time to administrate, what happens in this kind of a context? Are you basically being returned to your home country without having an opportunity to actually make the cases you have been historically able to do in this country? Well, since this is all kind of hypothetical right now, something that we're anticipating to potentially happen, we don't know exactly what this looks like. But right now, while people are awaiting their asylum claims, it's the same thing, Brianna. They come here and they haven't been granted asylum when they first get here. They have to go through a process. So while they're going through that process, they're able to stay here and wait out that process. Now, the Remain in Mexico policy that was under the Trump administration, that did require for migrants to be pushed back into Mexico and await their asylum claims there. That's not what's happening here. Right now, mm -hmm. when they have a notice to appear, some of them have two to five years before they even make their initial court appearance for an asylum claim. Yeah, the backup, the backlog is crazy. It takes so long for people to administer these claims. But we really appreciate all your reporting, Allie. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced during a roundtable discussion yesterday that he'll turn to the state's Supreme Court to investigate any wrongdoing related to the COVID vaccines. Let's watch. Today, uh, I'm announcing uh, a petition with the Supreme Court of Florida to impanel a statewide grand jury to investigate any and all wrongdoing in Florida with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. And we anticipate that we will get the approval for that uh, that will be something that will be impaneled, most likely in the Tampa Bay area, uh, and that will come with legal processes that will be able uh, to get more information and to bring legal accountability for those who committed misconduct. 
DeSantis has bucked COVID restrictions, including mandating vaccines, since the beginning of the pandemic. He cited cases of myocarditis and young people and other risks associated with the COVID vaccines as a reason to launch this investigation. Uh, what do you make of this, Robbie? Well, I think it's largely political, um, staving off a—trying to get ahead of Donald Trump for the eventual showdown that we all think is likely to happen between DeSantis and Trump for the Republican primaries. Uh, Trump is more pro-vaccine than Ron DeSantis is, oddly enough. Or, or DeSantis is—or Trump, rather, has been happy to say that he's, he's vaxxed and boosted and takes credit for delivering the vaccines so quickly and has been booed at his own rallies yeah. for being so pro-vaccine. Ron DeSantis, on the other hand—now, DeSantis was very— you know, it made vaccines available during the rollout in Florida. It went as smoothly in Florida as any other state. Um, encouraged vac uh, at least the first round of vaccines for at-risk populations, but has not personally, I think, disclosed his own his own booster status mm -hmm. at least. And uh, now is uh, it sounds like leaning into a little bit the you know kind of investigate the uh, you know what's what the side effects are, which is not an inherently bad or wrong thing to do no. whatsoever. There are potential side effects to explore. Um, and I will again say that not every—you know, I, I was reading a CNN article about this that, you know, makes this decision out to be, like, the most horrible affront on medical standards ever perpetrated in the entire country. And, you know, they're, they're talking about— um, yeah, Florida is an outlier in that it recommends against the COVID vaccines for healthy children. This puts it at odds with the CDC and the and Florida's American Academy of Pediatrics. Okay, it puts them at odds with the CDC, but it doesn't put like there are other. Uh, we've talked about other countries that have gone in, in Northern Europe and, and places like that that have decided that, you know, we don't, actually don't need to require the vaccines for otherwise healthy kids and teenagers because you can't show enough of a benefit. This is not because they're particularly dangerous, but it's, it's for, for mm. this age group, especially if you've already had COVID, there's some, there's some protection and you're not going to have a likely to have a bad health outcome either way. So it's just not, I don't think it's nearly as scary as it's being made out to be. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it depends. I think there's a world where if there were a broader, less partisan public trust mm -hmm. and DeSantis, there's a world where there should be enthusiasm about, um, you know, researching. Investigating the, pharmaceutical quote, companies, the, Brianna. Exactly. The pharmaceutical companies, the development, promotion, and distribution of vaccines purported to prevent COVID-19, whether or not there were financial incentives to any of this. Perhaps part of the investigation could include people who are perhaps prevented from um, getting paid, people who were fired because they de de declined to vaccinate the way mm -hmm. that there was that New York case where people got all that back pay uh, who were fired for yeah, that's today. a worthy thing to investigate. You know, and, and so there's a world where, where that's what this investigation is. And I think that generally speaking, it's useful to have transparency about how some of the decisions were being made. However, I do think that there is some skepticism that this is political grandstanding, uh, as you implied, and that this could end up being a witch hunt for local officials who were basically following what was the recommended advice from health mm -hmm. officials from the CDC and beyond at the time. And this could be used to basically wage war against people who are ideologically opposed. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, MSNBC's Joanne Reed criticized DeSantis's unrelenting focus on issues like critical race theory, banning books in schools, and anti-gay laws, while ignoring key problems like the insurance crisis, skyrocketing costs of living in cities like Miami, and unemployment. And of course, 
COVID. Here's a little of what she had to say on Monday's The Readout. Because your governor wants to make Florida a Petri dish for everything on 4chan. Anything that people on 4chan are screaming about, he wants to use it as a platform to make himself into the president. It's pretty disgusting. Uh, but it's what's happening. DeSantis is rumored to make a go for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, which currently polls show he might have a good chance at. A new USA Today Suffolk University poll shows DeSantis sitting 23 points ahead of former President Donald Trump in a hypothetical Republican primary. Maybe he's just he's locking it up. Yeah, he doesn't maybe. even want it to be a fight. Maybe. Look, first and foremost, Julian Reed has a way of saying things that even if I substantively agree with them, makes, makes me disagree with her. Um, so the question is whether or not the kind of feelings of uh, off-puttingness that people have about Joanne Reed as they become increasingly exposed to her, regardless of her politics, also apply to Ron DeSantis, because I did see some people pointing out uh, the video that we played, the clip earlier in this segment of him announcing this plan to investigate uh, how COVID was administered. And saying, oh, this is one of the longest times I've heard him speak, and I don't know that he has the charisma. I don't know that he can pull off what Trump has pulled off in the past. And is he still benefiting from the fact that he's a largely uh, largely a politician that many Americans know about in the written form? Uh, and when he actually is more in front of the public, folks will change their mind and realize that he's not as, he's not as much fun as Donald Trump. I don't know. I watched uh, some of that uh, press conference. Um, I, I thought he was... Uh, he, no one's as entertaining as Trump, obviously. You just can't do it. It's impossible. But Kanye's trying. I don't find Kanye that entertaining, honestly. I uh, don't. I mean, I saw some I never have. I'm truly immune to Kanye's charm the, or lack the, thereof. The tension, the irony of, in particular, the Alex Jones video, where Alex Jones... I find Alex Jones out left, amusing. To outleft Kanye No, no, that is amusing because Alex Jones is amusing. Well, no, I think it's Alex Jones, like, r- ratcheting it up, like, winding up, okay, you know, I, we don't like Hitler here, you know, you know, you're clearly saying some other important things, but obviously, you know, you can like the Hugo Boss outfit, but Hitler is a bad guy, and, and Kanye was interrupting, saying, "Well, I don't know. There's lots of well, other things yeah, to like about funny. Hitler. I mean, apart from obviously the horror of at all endorsing the." But I was more, I was more view. amused. Uh, Alex Jones was then interviewed on Stephen Crowder's uh, YouTube show, mm-hmm. Ladder with Crowder, mm-hmm. talking about how confused he was to hear um, uh, uh, Nick Fuentes, etc., being pro-Hitler, and then he just goes into this "I hate Hitler" rant that is so funny. I. I I'm amused by everything else. Okay. Says. I, tr- I find him right. truly so we, enjoyable we and hilarious. We agree that a lot of people with p- politics that I will call pretty deplorable have a certain comedic timing 100%. that lends themselves to TV. However, you think that despite Ron DeSantis not having those qualities, that he still can stay in there with Trump? <laughs> Hopefully. The old-fashioned having policies that your voting base likes. Yeah. Nah, no <laughs> That's way. not what it's about. He's doomed. Doomed. <laughs> right. I don't know. We'll see. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Los Angeles City Council member Kevin DeLeon was greeted with activist calls to resign when he returned to chambers yesterday. It marks his first time back after racist remarks on an audio tape went viral. His return comes days after a video of a physical altercation with an activist surfaced. Here's some of those racist remarks. 
¿Qué? 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 De Leon was recently interviewed on CNN about these incidents. Here's what he had to say. You're on tape making fun of a colleague's young black child when there's a racist conversation that's occurring, that colleague, who's a fellow Democrat, now still considers you, and his words are, a vile racist, is how he puts it, Councilman. You've been absent from the committee um, since October. The council meetings have been shut down multiple times over this scandal due to committee members, community members protesting, and the committee not being able to um, operate the council. And then, last week, you got into a physical fight, no matter who started it, and I know there is video that has come out to show how serious the altercation did become. But you got into a fight then on Friday with an activist. If this was anyone else, would you say that the person I just described is serving their community well? No, let me say this, Kate, is that's not the person who I am. Let me underscore that. I have a body in a history of progressive, you know, policies that have improved the human condition for all individuals, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of the color of your skin or your legal status or who you love or which God you pray to. De Leon was also asked why he is not resigning, even though other council members involved in that audio leak did resign. I'm here to do the business of my constituents, and that's what I've worked for tirelessly, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. I can tell you this, and I want to underscore and emphasize the following. If you don't think I'm profoundly sorry you know, for participating in that meeting or for not standing up and shutting that meeting down and shutting down the vitriolic comments from then-president uh, of the council, who did eventually resign, that's something I'm uh, forever will be sorry for. And that's why I'm having the constructive but conversations also, and dialogue with folks outside the just... community. I totally understand, but it wasn't you, what you. It wasn't just that you didn't stand up. You also took part in the conversation. I mean, in it, you said you compared the young black child of a fellow councilman to um, being an accessory, like a luxury handbag. Yeah, I'm glad that reporter followed up there because in the fallout of the leaked tape, when we were first covering it, the the other woman, the other council member, Nuri Martinez, really did take most of that heat, get, got most of the, the pushback. And even though um, the reporter made reference to the idea that she was forced to resign, that's not true. She resigned. What people were citing was her resignation from her leadership position on the city council. Neither of them were rushing to re resign. And obviously, Kevin DeLeon is still there saying that he won't. Moreover, but he's sorry, Brianna. Yeah, he's that that was going to be my next point that he did this apology tour just a month ago in the wake of the original leaked tape and used almost verbatim the exact same language about how this is not who I am. This does not represent who I am. I respect everybody and then listing all the identity categories like we'd see exactly how much that apology is worth if not a month later we're seeing you in fisticuffs with a constituent who is upset with you over those racist tapes. If you listen to that altercation, he's, he's saying that you're a racist and won't you resign? The last thing is there was, you know, she, you know, the reporter there says, well, there's some he said, she said about who started the fight. I mean, we're looking at the footage and it seems to me that although the constituent is obviously combative and loud, when they get close to each other, he raises his hands above his head in a, in a kind of like 
I, I'm not I'm not getting physical gesture. And it's Kevin DeLeon who kind of grabs him up by the coat and ends up being very much the aggressive aggressor, throwing him to the ground into a table. I mean, it's really wild stuff. It, it is pretty wild. I want to be careful with this footage because it's clipped too. I don't, sure. you know, it's hard to know. Even the angles at these things can can make the situation sure. seem different from what they are. Uh, people were getting in his face. It doesn't look good, but I don't, I don't, I, don't, I, I, I I would want to see the whole thing because people leap to conclusions on these things and sometimes they end up humiliated. Who's more culpable, Kevin DeLeon or Will Smith? <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw the whole thing there. There was no ambiguity there. Look, all I'm saying is that even if someone else starts it, for a ranking city council member to be involved in this level of scandal and still not feel the pressure to resign tells you something about how I must powerful say I, his status is in the area. I don't really care for his legislation either. He has a long archive at uh, our, the magazine I read for a reason of all sorts of bills he's sponsored that I don't quite <laughs> like well, very much. But I think that's a, a, a fair point, too, because uh, while so much of the— He's kind of a nanny state type. Well, so much of the reporting has been around the— particular remarks, the racist remarks in, in, in that tape. What was more newsworthy in a lot of respects was this open jockeying between Latino city council members and leadership in the, the city and black leadership in the city and this idea, this feeling that's pervasive throughout the tape that there is a zero-sum game here. And all of the antagonism that you're hearing from both Noreen Mar uh, Martinez and Kevin DeLeon is about the idea that other either black city council members or people who they describe as being aligned or too sympathetic to the black council members like this uh, guy with the black kid who is white himself, um, are, are somehow taking away resources or unfairly taking more than they deserve because Latinos are a bigger part of the population mm -hmm. here. And so this really is about political brinkmanship that happens to have this kind of racial uh, lens over it. But what's very disturbing to me as a leftist in a state that is like overwhelmingly blue is why they are so focused on fighting each other for a diminishing piece of this pie instead of having a more expansive kind of politics. He should definitely resign. <laughs> and yet, what does it mean to you that even after all of this, he's still standing firm? I mean, it means that our democracy is not as representative as we'd like it to be. It, it, it's, There's no accountability mechanism. We're at a point where uh, politicians often just feel like they don't have to resign over very embarrassing, over things more embarrassing than this, frankly. Uh, sometimes they just stay the course. Um, what, what school, what board, uh, school district board was it? Was it L.A. or San Francisco? Mm -hmm. I think it was San Francisco where they, uh, several uh, members were caught on tape just saying, really despicable things about uh, about Asian students mm -hmm. and just vile racist things. And they had to all be voted out. And they were voted out. But they, okay. they didn't resign over it. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I take a positive and a negative lesson from this. I do think that there was something kind of mesmerizing to watch in 2016 when Trump got hit with scandal after scandal after scandal. And he didn't even do what Kevin DeLeon does here and apologize. I think part of his success was not even recognizing that he was at fault in any of these circumstances from the, you know, grab him by the you-know-what tape all Hollywood. through. You know, and it does seem like we're increasingly moving into this political space where 
people don't, social pressure, it just isn't enough for you to step down. There's no sense that like your personal sense of dignity and decorum is going to cause you to remove yourself from the position. There is a presumption that everyone is going to have to be forced but it's, out. But it's interesting that that has happened in the political realm, mm-hmm. but not in any other realm. People are routinely fired or, or, or resign in disgrace in all other walks of life, well, not in the political realm. But it, it, I, I agree with that, but only to a degree, because the people who are not stepping down are powerful political players mm-hmm. who don't have to. The reason why so many people are be able to be pushed out in kind of more employment context is because they're not senior. No one's going to push out the CEO of American Express. No one is going to push out anyone who's genuinely in a position of power. And these I don't know. If the CEO of American Express was caught saying racist things on tape, he'd be much more likely to be forced to resign I by his shareholders so. I don't think than this took, guy. Well, shareholders have more accountability over their CEOs yes. than people in a democratic process. Absolutely. To, they you do. You have to wait for in election fact, cycles. They do. Yes. Things have to happen. It takes so much money. Uh, and much less powerful people, constituents, have to rally and organize in order to get them out. So I think what we're really seeing here is a failure of the accountability mechanisms in our democratic system. Yes, I agree. It's concerning. Very concerning. Yeah. Well, and oftentimes they're just safe, actually, from the because it's been gerrymandered in such a way, or the real battles in the primary, or the party construction. There's so many ways where it's just not everybody voting for the person they like the best, where that dynamic is not taking place. That dynamic's not taking place in the presidential context yeah. anymore because of, I mean, the, the Electoral College and then we've all sorted ourselves and yeah. where our people are living now matters so much. So, yeah. Well, I don't think this story is going anywhere if Kevin DeLeon keeps this up. So we'll continue to cover it and have more rising for you after this. There's another push to ban TikTok in the United States. Yesterday, Florida Senator Marco Rubio proposed a bill that would ban the app under the premise it might be used to spy on Americans and censor content. In a press release issued by Rubio's office, the senator says that the app is required by Chinese law to make data available to the Chinese Communist Party. He also notes that several government agencies, including the FBI and the FCC, have flagged TikTok as a risk to national security. I don't know. Should we ban TikTok? What do you think, Brianna? I'm having a hard time parsing why this isn't a free speech issue for the free speech people, because you could apply this logic to a lot of different things. Okay, if we open our borders to Chinese nationals visiting on a tourist visa that can open us up to spying, are we going to do a new version of the Chinese Exclusion Act? Uh, You know, any number of companies work with China, have deals with China, and we see the influence that that relationship has on things like the messaging that we have in movies, NBA players' ability to be critical of China. We saw LeBron James walk back some comments really quick. I think that was just last year. You know, are we going to sever ties there? Are corporations not going to be allowed? Is the NBA not going to be allowed to have uh, teams and relationships with Chinese leagues? You know, where does this end? And it's not that I am indifferent to potential national security concerns, but it doesn't seem to me that TikTok necessarily presents a new threat. So why is TikTok being targeted in this way? Right. The privacy concerns are prevalent across all these platforms, mm-hmm. the, the data sharing, the you know forming a picture of you. So that's not really unique to TikTok. What is unique to TikTok is the level of influence the Chinese government has on the content that appears there. So I do understand that, for instance, they would have tremendous power, more power than than the U.S. government has to shape the discourse on Twitter and Facebook, although we know they've tried. We're seeing in some of the Twitter files disclosures, some of the other things that they have tried to shape the narrative with respect to some national security topics, Russia, 
Hunter Biden, uh, COVID stuff, they have really tried, but it's not anywhere close to what China can do, which is just very easily shut down entire conversations. Well, help me understand this, because the examples that have been given for how China, at least so far, has wielded its influence on TikTok seem to be pretty subtle. Talking about uh, privileging kind of divisive content, I was I was sitting next to a friend recently, um, a white friend, and looking at their TikTok, and everything did seem to be about weird videos of like race war stuff, you know, black people and white people fighting in a Popeyes, and like just like random stuff. So you know, if if they're talking about stuff like that, I, I would say. I get how that generally sows discontent, but I don't know that that raises to the level no, but of saying I, that you're influencing American politics. Sure, but, but I think they did, for instance, with COVID, they just they did not allow any discussion of COVID whatsoever for a period of time. Mm. Um, they just took down all of that content. They could, they, it, let's say they had a, they were on a, more firmly on a side in the Ukraine-Russia conflict or something. They could just disband all content critical of Ukraine or critical of Russia or something like so, that. So like, so like Twitter. Well, but but with the state explicitly doing it in a way that the state, the U.S. government can't. Sure. I mean, again, they've tried. It's a little bit of, but they, the, the, the U.S. government can't say sure. take down this viewpoint, etc. They can ask nicely, and then they can thre- kind of threaten about well, what well, they're going to do. Regulation. So that is that's akin to, and I've seen people make the argument, just like for instance, in the Cold War, if like the Soviet Union purchased an American. I don't know, a, a television network or something, probably that wouldn't have been allowed um, because, like, we wouldn't have allowed Russian propaganda to be aired. So if this is Chinese propaganda in the same way, they wouldn't have allowed it. I don't know, that is it. kind of goofy to me. I mean— Well, I don't find it persuasive. It, I'm telling it, you what they say. we know what it is. I mean, it, it's like—I'm I'm reminded again of uh, during the 2019 campaign when I got in a little trouble for uh, saying in an interview when asked, you know, what do you think of the Russian misinformation— that's uh, targeted to black people. And I said, which misinformation? And they say all of this messaging about how the American government is is bad for black people. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, it's true. <laughs> I mean, the best way to combat this misinformation was, is with having policies that aren't discriminatory. And I got in trouble for saying that thing. But I, I, I guess I'm still in that same place where it seems to me that we could get to a place where the influence on apps like Twitter is so obviously Constrained. It's so obviously being determined by outside forces that are inorganic mm-hmm. and that have a, an obvious direction. And users might revolt. Users might not want to be on an app where they're feeling like they're being puppet strong. I think that what we're seeing with Twitter right now is a lot of people having um, feelings of disaffectation because they don't know if they're being shadow banned. They don't know if it's worth it for them to even tweet and be on the app and spend time on the app. And that could very easily happen with TikTok, where I think authenticity. Um, and, you know, kind of having a slice-of-life moment in video is much more core to the principle of the app. It's certainly more collaborative and, I think, artistic and creative in a, in a less shallow way than, for instance, Instagram. So I, I think it mitigates a, a issue that uh, people were raising with social media, or with Instagram in particular. Remember when we were talking about a year ago now, the, you know, the, the, the whistleblower, mm. uh, the, the, the Facebook whistleblower who came forward and said, Facebook knows that its platform is harmful to users. And by users, they meant a subset of users. And by a subset of users, they meant teenage girls of a particular age. And by that, they meant even a a smaller Mm -hmm. subdivision of them. It was actually a small number of people we're talking about who are harmed by Instagram. And I I found the whole thing very overblown because 
this is a group of t- teenagers would complain it will complain about school they'll complain about every but aspect but, of their lives but, how, but anyway tiktok yeah. is i think even even if you think that's a serious harm tiktok is less harmful on all those fronts well yeah and, and again the the claim here is that it's like harmful or promoting eating disorders I mean, that's some of like the, that i mean that's fine but that's not why that's not the stated goal of marco rubio's bill here to shut it down it's because of communist China's uh, uh, interference in U.S. politics. And it's just not clear to me. I mean, I guess I'm wondering if, if, if the app itself at a certain point, if it's so obviously coercive and if they're actually being, you know, significantly effective, people, users actually flee because it's against kind of the spirit of the app or on the alternative, am I being too naive about the kind of influence that can have a real effect on American politics? You know, shutting down, you know, if, if, if TikTok were, as you say, to say, like, we're not allowing any COVID content whatsoever, you know, is that going to be something that discourages folks from actually using the app? Or is everyone just going to continue using it, knowing that it's an app that has the following bias, that you're not allowed to talk about COVID, and therefore we're going to go and talk about COVID in all these other places? And is it going to seem that different from what we've been talking about with all of these other kind of censorship moments across social media when we have the CDC recommendations holding such sway in the United States of America. Yeah, I think we should use this uh, moment of concern about TikTok. Not we, should, we shouldn't stop being concerned about it, but we should take it as an opportunity to consider our own policies. Yeah. And I'm glad we do, are not nearly as authoritarian and hostile to free speech as our government as the Chinese government, but all of the things we are complaining about that TikTok does, our powers, our government is slowly trying to claim for itself. It's not been totally successful yet, and but it is trying to influence it, the COVID dialogue in the exact same way the Chinese authorities And do can. you think that shutting down TikTok is one of those that, Yes, moves? yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's wild to hear our, our elected representatives, our political figures on both sides, you know, complain about authoritarian China and how, how evil they are and how repressive they are, all, which is all true. And then they're saying this, and then they're screaming at... U.S. tech companies and U.S. entities from doing business. Ban an app. They're trying to dictate their content choices to U.S. um, uh, businesses. They aspire to do exactly what China's doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should read a statement here from a TikTok spokesperson who said this. It is troubling that rather than encouraging the administration to conclude its national security review of TikTok, some members of Congress have decided to push for a politically motivated ban that will do nothing to advance the national security of the United States. We will continue to brief members of Congress on the plans that have been developed under the oversight of our country's top national security agencies, plans that we uh, know are well underway in implementing to further secure our platform in the United States. Yeah, it does seem it does seem to me that there should be things short of banning an app that would protect the interests that are being articulated here. So we'll see what happens and we'll have more rising for you right after this. Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker is at risk of being canceled. That is, if Ukraine's culture minister has his way. In an op-ed column Alexander Kuchenko published in The Guardian, he calls for a temporary boycott of Russian artists and composers, saying that anything related to Russian culture is, quote, a tool and even a weapon that the Kremlin used to further its agenda. He urged Western allies, including the U.S., to join in the pause until Russia ends its invasion of Ukraine. 
Should this plea be heeded, it wouldn't be the first cultural boycott of Russia. Several institutions, including the Metropolitan Opera, the Cannes Film Festival, and even the NHL, already cut ties with artists who support Russian President Vladimir Putin. But even if allies were to join Ukraine, it's simply just too late to pull a production of a holiday favorite like the Nutcracker. The holiday favorite rakes in about 45% of annual ticket sales for the New York City Ballet. My Uber driver this morning was telling me about how he spends uh, Christmas in New York and he's so excited to go and see, see the, the Nutcracker. Nutcracker again. Is that the do-do-do-do-do-do-do? Do, yeah. do, do. That's that's the one, Robbie. Thank you for it. this vocal style. <laughs> um, and I love that uh, uh, Kachenko saying, "Oh, this will be temporary." How how's it temporary when you were saying this? At the, they were saying this eight months ago. I did a I did a radar on this uh, a long time ago when it was when it was Ryan sitting in that chair. So there's <laughs> there's nothing temporary about this. It's so dumb. We don't need to punish. Um, people just trying to enjoy music. We don't need to punish Russian culture. This isn't a war on Russian culture. It's not a war on the Russian people. It's a conflict with the regime of Russia. It's Russia's government, really one person, Vladimir Putin. Um, and, and if you turn it into a kind of totalizing thing where it's, it's about how bad Russia is and how bad Russian culture is, then I think that that would be very alienating and isolating for the people in Russia who don't yeah. even support it. It's also and like you, music from 100 years ago. Like it has nothing to do with what's yeah. going on. It's not even like a contemporaneous boycott of, say, the Russian Kanye West, you know, someone who's in the country right now espousing viewpoints that one might disagree with. The whole thing has big freedom fries vibes. Or remember when the conflict first started and people were performatively pouring their vodka into the gutter? I was very sad about that. <laughs> I bet you were. <laughs> to see that go to waste. Um, yeah, and wasn't Tchaikovsky, I remember because I did a radar on this months ago, I'm going to try to pull it up. Wasn't he a, 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 I thought he was like a very pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian authoritarian figure. That's Am I making that up? I don't think a, I'm making that up. A lot of these people, this happened with a, with a restaurant here in, in D.C. A lot of people have been kind of interchangeably using these descriptors of Russian and Ukrainian. There was a, uh, a, a bar here that was, you know, it's called something like the Russian room or Russian tea room, something like that. And it was actually owned by Ukrainians. It got vandalized after this conflict started down on, you know, Connecticut Horrible. on the way to DuPont Circle. And the Ukrainian owners are like, okay, I guess we have to rebrand now. We're actually Ukrainian. You're hurting us. But the, the brand of Russia is so bad. Before it was an appeal, right? Russia's bigger... More, you know, more looming in the cultural imagination than Ukraine. And now everyone has to, to, to re, refigure, reconfigure. And is anyone going to ask, them, gonna, anyone gonna ask themselves about the morality of endorsing those kind of actions, even if the target was accurate? Uh, I, I looked it up. He was, in fact, very pro-Ukraine. He loved Ukraine. Uh, this is, and there, and we're, we're not just like, we're not making that there were a Operas that were shut down, performances that were shut down. Uh, the Cardiff Philharmonic shut down a production of a Tchaikovsky work some months ago. It's, it's Freedom Fries. It's it really freedom, is Freedom Fries. And it's, it's very interesting to see uh, kind of liberals participate in some of this. Uh, after this one is a liberal one. Being this is so liberal freedom dismissive. Fries. I mean, we, went, we just all lived through this with the yeah. Bush years. And it is, a, it is quite disheartening for folks not to see how they're repeating one of the things that we mocked the most about how dumb the Bush era was. Got to put that Ukraine flag in your uh, Twitter bio. Have you, have you gotten yours in there yet, Brianna? I, I, I do not. I, I take a firm... Uh, Elon Musk-ish stance about not being compelled to put things in my Twitter bio. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking. He was talking about um, 
feeling like he felt pressure to put pronouns in his bio, which I've also felt at times, but it's also easy just to not do what you don't want to do. And if you're really got a libertarian mindset, you make the choices that you make. What's, what's the liberal version of the pro, my pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci? My oh. pronouns are Zelensky slash sexy or something. <laughs> Cuomo sexual vibes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a mess. Look, I, I, I will say that it, it, it is a shame that the the performativity of that has, I think, sometimes supplanted genuine feelings of sympathy for the people. It's not their fault, but it, I think it doesn't it doesn't help the underlying cause when people are basically primed to expect. There's like a meme that says mm-hmm. Ukraine flag and emoji uh, emoji and bio. You're about to hear the stupidest take you've ever heard on the internet. Like if I were Ukrainian, I wouldn't want that association to be happening. I'm not sure that all the people who are emoji warriors are yeah. actually making a strong and, case. And the Ukrainians have a lot on their hands right now. Right. They have bigger issues than caring if you put, it's, it's very performative too. Oh, well, you put a flag in your bio for all, things all a lot. We would like this conflict that's destroying our homes yeah. and killing our people to come to an end. All of the, the, if I could, if I had a penny for every person with Black Lives Matter in their bio who taunted me, attacked me, <laughs> launched racist invectives against me, I would be a very rich woman. So, <laughs> Well, meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, speaking of, isn't letting up on his push for ongoing U.S. support of the war-torn nation in the fight with Russia. He sat down with former late-night talk show host David Letterman on his Netflix special in which he made fun of Russia and NATO. He also poked at Putin for labeling the war a, quote, military operation, which is... True. It, it, it's, it's a war, not a military operation. Yes. I mean, you can understand why Russia would downplay um, the significance or kind of the efficacy of the Ukrainian response. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like we, and regretfully, the posture of this thing refuses to change. There has been some movement post-CPC letter of the, the Democratic White House being more open to the idea of negotiations, something that was completely taboo to mention. Now, all of a sudden, it's like allowable conversation. But in substance, um, you know, I, I just saw Joe Cerencioni, who I had this conflict with over our interview on my podcast, someone who was an anti-war leftist who seemed to be very opposed to the CPC letter and any discussions of negotiation just recently tweeted uh, earlier this week that this was a war that was going to end on the battlefield, not at a negotiating table. And so there are a lot of folks, including on the anti-war left, who still are prioritizing kind of the military aspect of this intervention and deprioritizing negotiations in a way that strikes me as counterintuitive. All wars end at negotiating tables eventually. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently not according to Joe Cerenzioni. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we will be back with a fresh Thursday show for you. Same rising time, same (laughs) rising place. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm. We will see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.